Welcome to this week's edition of Leading the Way, powered by the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Influential people, high-performing organizations, creating a culture of success. And now your hosts, Scott Murray and Angel Carlton. Hello again, everybody. Great to have you along in this Sunday afternoon. We are delighted to welcome you to yet another edition of Leading the Way. And, of course, uh, our presenting partner, I4CP, I'm Scott Murray. And I'm Angel Carlton. And this is a, a special time. Do you believe it? It is the month of June. Where has the year gone? I know, I know. It's going by quickly. It's well, I tell you what. Do you eat well every day? Do you go out to eat a lot? I love food. Yeah, I know you I, love food. <laughs> but do. do you like to go out and eat food I, as well? Yes, I do. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Ever been to a place called Chili's? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean it's a cold place to be. No. I mean, Chili's, you <laughs> well, know. Everybody knows Chili's. Of course <laughs> they do. It's as renowned as getting up in the morning. I mean, that's what it's all about. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Brinker International, and we're going to be talking to the chairman and the former chairman and uh, former CEO of this uh, this incredible organization, and uh, it's uh, it's some pretty good stuff. He's a longtime friend and a guy that I admire, not only for what he does in the corporate world, but uh, maybe more importantly, just what he does in in the personal world is is as well. So uh, we're really excited, and, and as I said, our presenting partner once again, I4CP, of which you are a director. Yes, yes, Scott. Uh, the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Uh, for those of you tuning in for the first time, we're a human capital research firm, and we study those people practices of the high performing organizations in the world. Uh, we work with companies like Amazon, uh, Starbucks. Um, Microsoft, 3M, Ford, and so on. And uh, we'd love for you to visit our website, learn more about who we are and how we can help your organization. It's i4cp.com. That's i4cp.com. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Well, let me talk about uh, great places to eat and yeah, let's restaurants that understand business. what goes on <laughs> in this world. How about Brinker International? One of the world's largest leading casual dining restaurant companies, literally on the planet, with more than 1,600 restaurants in over... 100,000 team members in 31 countries and two territories. They welcome more than 1 million guests into Chili's and Maggiano's, another one of the restaurants, every single day. Mm. Is that above and beyond or what? It really is something special. Now, in the past three decades, Brinker International has acquired and shed along the way several other restaurant chains. You go, you kidding me? That's part of, no, you, you just won't believe it. <laughs> Including Romano's Macaroni Grill and Corner Bakery and the list goes on and on. But, uh, it acquired Maggiano's back in August of 1995, and to this day now, Brinker International is really focused on Maggiano's and Chili's. And uh, they've got 1,634 Chili's worldwide, 52 Maggiano's. And as I said, the gentleman that uh, makes it all happen, he certainly did for lots and lots and lots of years, is a gentleman that we're going to have uh, as our special guest here today. Let me tell you a little something about uh, this guy. He started in February 8th of 1978. He was a manager trainee. Wow. Right, we're, we're talking 40 years ago, all right? And now, proudly, well, at the time, he said, I'm going to be sampling food and beverages, mostly with no official role, <laughs> after he retired as the chairman and CEO. In an organization, he says that I'll certainly be the biggest cheerleader the company has ever had, and he continues to be that because he is a consultant. Even after he uh, retired as the CEO and the, and, the, and the chairman, they said, hey, stick around, stick around. Yeah, we be can a use consultant. your knowledge. Yeah, Absolutely. so he has, he has an office up there. It's, it's unreal. He joined the company three years after Chili's founder, Larry Levine, opened the first location in Dallas on Greenville Avenue. The company was still called Chili's and had yet to go public at that time. And then in 1984, 28 restaurants opened. Chili's, Inc. drew the attention of restaurant entrepreneur 
the powerhouse Norman Brinker. He bought the company, took it public the same year, and according to the company website, I mean, it, it just skyrocketed. There are uh, close to, as I said, 1,700 uh, chilies now, 1,634 to be exact. So, uh, But uh, the fellow we're about to talk to, to was uh, the chief executive officer from uh, January of 2004 until November of 2012, and he'd been the chairman uh, since uh, November of uh, 2004, but uh, retired about uh, five, six years ago. But he is our special guest today, and as I said, a dear friend who really makes it happen, not only for places like Chili's and Maggiano's, but an incredible nonprofit organization that we're going to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Doug Brooks, how was that for an intro? Do we get it all right or not? I think most of that was close to correct. <laughs> <laughs> most of it. That's that's not a good endorsement, Doug. What do you mean most? <laughs> well, you're being way too nice is what I meant. <laughs> I know that's what you meant. I'm just kidding you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and it is an honor and a privilege to be on your program. Well, we're delighted to have you as well, and I've yes, told Angel about all the wonderful things that you do in this community, and for that matter, all across the country. Uh, uh, the uh, the nonprofit that I was referring to is St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which is physically based in Memphis, Tennessee, but does things all across the country, and for that matter, touches the, the lives of children all around the world with all they continue to do. And we'll get to, to that and your involvement and how Chili's was involved with that as a result of your incredible vision and your mission over the years very, very shortly. But let's talk about your role now as a consultant. I said it was about, what, five, six years ago that you uh, stepped aside as the chairman, CEO, and what have you. Uh, You're a consultant. They said, stick around, be here. I think that's above and beyond. That's really cool. That's great respect, certainly for you. Well, it it certainly was. uh, I I didn't want to stay on as the chairman and be the old guy sitting at the table when (laughs) current CEO Wyman Roberts might want to change something. I didn't want to stand in their way or make it uncomfortable. So I got the next best thing, which is a free office and the (laughs) chance to still be engaged with all the people. So two or three times a week, I'll probably have breakfast or lunch with one of the executives or rising stars in the company, occasionally they'll roll me out to make a speech, do an interview. Just uh, it's awesome, a place that I spent my whole career. Now I get to sort of unofficially help not just be a cheerleader, but occasionally sample some food and beverage, but also just help develop the young leaders in the company as well. Good for you. Good for you. Let me ask you this before we move on with our with our program. How have things changed the most? Are there one or two things that you said you jumped on board 40 years ago for Pete's sake? You were a manager trainee back in 1978, and now here we are in 2018, brand new century, 40 years ago, four decades ago. The biggest changes between what it was like then and what it is today, what comes to mind? Well, how long is this program? Uh, everything has changed. <laughs> Cliff Notes version. The thing that hasn't changed is people still normally eat three meals a day, thank God. Uh, but from the competitive marketplace, when Chili's first opened, mom cooked meals mostly at home. People mm-hmm. went out for special occasions only. Now every meal is, is is going out. Very few moms cook meals for the kids anymore. And then the competitive uh, landscape is different. There's over a million restaurants in this country. There were very few when Chili's first started. And then most importantly, kind of the technology and the, I call it the Amazon factor, which we can talk about more. People wanting things delivered to them has completely uh, changed retail and restaurants. Folks now order with their hands and their devices versus their cars. Uh, so there, everything has changed, um, which is what makes it exciting, but also very challenging. You've got to be creative, you've got to be innovative, and you have to come up with new ways to deliver your food to that same hungry guest. Well put, well put. Well, as I think you already know, we uh, 
kind of prefaced you on the whole idea of what the program is all about. Leading the way, we kick things off with a little something we call your journey to success. It's our lightning round segment, and it's uh, it's quick and efficient, but uh, we kind of give uh, our, our listeners a chance to find out who you are and what you're really all about and how you became the leader that you have become through the years. So let's start with uh, question number one. First job that you had, and what did you learn from it? Well, my first job uh, before child labor laws were put in place, I was 13, and I worked at a place called Youngblood's Fried Chicken. I was a summer busboy and dishwasher, and you don't get much lower on the food chain than summer <laughs> right. busboy and dishwasher. But this Youngblood's Fried Chicken is at the corner of Preston and Forest. Those of your listeners in North Dallas, there's actually a Starbucks there today. But it, it was amazing. There were two managers. One was named Mike. One was named Bob. And you would think that if you went to work for a company, there would be similar leadership or management styles by the leaders. Of course, this was a small family-owned company. But Mike and Bob couldn't have been more different. Mike hired me. The day he hired me, knew my name was Doug. And every time he spoke to me for that summer, he said, you know, always said Doug, always respectful. He'd walk by the dish area and say, hey, things look great. He'd see me bust a table and say, hey, thanks. If he wanted me to mop the floor, he'd say, hey, when you get a second dug, can you do that? And then he'd follow up. I mean, Mike was amazing. Looked me in the eye, treated me with respect. I was this young kid. Okay, Bob, well, unless my unless hay counts, Bob doesn't know my name today. I was, in, <laughs> I was invisible. I was invisible on the job. When you got your time clock and left, he'd sign it, wouldn't look at me, never said a word. I was, And, and so what I learned was how important it was to treat people with respect, no matter who you are in the organization. Mike treated me like I was the most important employee in the company. Bob treated me like I was invisible. And, you know, certain people, I think, as they grow in titles, they think that title earns you respect. Well, titles don't earn you respect. Leaders have to create the dynamic between you and that employee. And no matter who they are, everybody is important, particularly in the food business. Everybody's important in the process, the dishwasher, the busboy, as well as the manager. And I learned at Young Bud's Fried Chicken from Mike that when I was the leader, I was going to treat everybody that worked for me with respect. Mm-hmm. Boy, what a great experience to be exposed to do two totally different types of leadership styles. And as you grew into your career, you, you know, you got to choose which one to mimic. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the fun things of when you're young and you work jobs, you learn from your bosses who you want to be like and who you don't want to be like. Absolutely. Great Absolutely. Point. Great point. So, well, that leads into our next question here. Uh, who are your top two mentors in life and how did they influence you as a young professional? Well, um, my mentor and hero, one of them was my mother. Uh, she raised eight kids um, and worked the entire time we were growing up, and she was just the most positive, wonderful human being that ever lived. And what I learned from her, besides uh, her work ethic, was just the way she made people feel. Whoever she met, whoever she talked to, she kind of made them feel like they were the only person that she met that day. Uh, she made them feel special. She made them feel welcome. And uh, so I you know, lived my whole life trying to live up to her work ethic, but more importantly, live up to the way she made people feel. And the second one, uh, Scott already kind of mentioned, uh, the greatest leader in my in my life, and I think in the history of the restaurant industry, a guy named Norman Brinker, coincidentally, who spent most of his adult life in Dallas. But not only was he the greatest uh, restaurateur, he also was this incredible leader that sort of had this great balance. Most people that you work for seem to be either real numbers-oriented or real people-oriented. They sort of left side, right side. And Norman had this amazing, perfect middle ground he wanted to win. He loved beating the competition. He cared about numbers and business, 
but he also was a real people person that developed people and let you know he was on you were on he was on your side. And uh, the day he showed up at Chili's in July of 1983, he not only transformed the company, he transformed the careers of many people. And I was lucky enough to spend 23 years working alongside him and learned about business and about people. Yeah, he was uh, he was something special. I had the, uh, the the good fortune of certainly not knowing him as well as you did, but knowing him through different nonprofits and what have you. And, and as a matter of fact, the family, you'll probably recall, they had their the funeral for Norman was at the uh, Meyerson Symphony Center, and uh, they asked me if I would emcee the the festivities. Uh, no, well, not festivities, but the the ceremony, and uh, and I was totally blown away by the people that showed up. It was it was like a who's who, all across literally the entire nation, or for that matter, around the world. Not just restaurant people, but just the the creme de la creme of people that make this world go. I was just totally blown away, Doug. It was unbelievable. I just stood there and said, "Wow, he's here, he's here, she's here." It was unbelievable. You may remember, Scott. I was fortunate enough to be asked to be one of the folks to to give Norman's eulogy. Oh, I do, I do remember it well. Ross Pro Senior. And you may remember his nephew, William, Cindy, his daughter, Cindy's son, who just a week ago graduated from college. He was 12 years old on that day in 2009 when he got on stage and blew everyone away as a 12-year-old talking about his grandfather. Um, but that was quite a day. Oh, my and gosh. You're right. Yeah. He, was a, he had politicians, polo players, restaurant tours, business people. Oh. Anybody that was anybody, they were there. Yeah. Respectfully for Norman Brinker. We're talking to, uh, to Doug Brooks former CEO and chairman of Brinker International. We're back with more after this. Leading the way. It's about influential leaders and the business practices leading companies use to impact market performance. That's what the Institute for Corporate Productivity, or I4CP, does on a daily basis. We work with leading companies, from Amazon to Boeing, and REI to 3M, to not only discover the best people practices of high-performance organizations, but the next practices those that will define market leadership in the years ahead. Senior HR, learning, talent, and diversity executives from many of the most respected companies in the world rely on I4CP to ensure that their efforts will make the greatest impact on the business. After all, it's difficult to stay ahead by only looking behind. I4CP's focus on next practices is what today's top companies rely on to lead the way. I4CP. Institute for Corporate Productivity, leading the way every single day. And now back to Leading the Way, powered by the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Here's Scott Murray and Angel Carlton. Welcome back as we continue this Sunday afternoon edition of uh, Leading the Way. Scott Murray along with Angel Carlton as we continue with uh, Doug Brooks, former CEO and chairman of Brinker International. Doug, let's move on as we continue the lightning round. Number three, what's been the most significant experience or turning point in your professional career in developing the skills in the leader that you have become? What comes to mind? Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Uh, almost everything I say, I'm going to have a Norman Brinker reference. And so back to that day when Norman showed up, we were this small uh, – we, we were called the hamburger hippies, and the type of restaurant we had then was called the gourmet burger segment. But when Norman Brinker showed up – took us public, uh, he transformed everything, and he taught us about strategy. Before that, Larry Levine, who was the founder, who's still in Dallas and a great friend, a tremendous entrepreneur, a foodie, a great restaurateur, 
but he had never grown a company. Well, Norman had already grown steak and Allen Bennigan's and Burger King and was chairman of the Pillsbury Food Group. It was the second largest food group in the world. So Norman came in and taught us about business, taught us about strategy, taught us about real estate, taught us about being a public company. And, uh, you know, there's no bigger impact on my life than sitting in the room with him for the next 23 years learning about uh, being a leader and being a great, successful business person. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. Well, uh, based on everything that you've learned, and especially from Norman, I mean, what is the best advice you'd give someone in the next generation? Well, it's the same advice Norman gave me, so I told you I'd be a broken record. (laughs) He said that the greatest leaders, and he knew all of them, that he met had two particular skills that he was always envious of and tried to emulate, and one was being a great listener. And he used to say, you have two ears and one mouth and use them accordingly. But the more you listen, he said, the more you learn. And it's funny, he would sometimes stand in front of a group of his employees in a question and answer. And whenever someone would ask him a question, instead of him assuming that he was the guy that knew all the answers and answering the question, and he knew that if somebody asked the question, they probably had a position on that question, he would usually turn it around and say, well, what is your opinion on that? What is your thought on that? And he would say that I learned more when I was supposed to be the speaker asking the person to ask me the question. And he said that was the essence of being a great listener is every time you think you're supposed to answer the question, you may want to check, talk to the people that you're talking to. They may really know more about the question than, than you give them credit for. So a great listener and secondly, being curious, curious mm-hmm. leader, constantly learning. And Norman always Whenever you were with him, whether we were walking in a restaurant or sitting in a boardroom, he always wanted to know, how can we do it faster? How can we do it better? How can we learn more from other companies? And, of course, he was connected with lots of other leaders, had an incredible board, and he just was the most curious man that ever lived. He was always trying to learn new things about how to get better and beat the competition. And his legacy as a result of that, Doug, continues to this very day. And that brings me to my next question. How would you define your legacy? What comes to mind? Well, probably a probably a pretty simple statement. Years ago, when we were trying to create the culture at Chili's and Brinker that we thought hope would live on through the people and the way they behaved and interact with team members and guests, we came up with what we called our passion. And our passion is four words, making people feel special. And we decided that whether it's in our corporate headquarters or in our restaurants or in your personal lives, and back to the way my mom made people feel, that's why it resonated with me, make people feel special. And I hope that maybe at some point in time when someone's talking about me, they might just say, whenever I was around Doug Brooks, he made me feel special. Mm. I like it. Oh, I like it. It's the hospitality industry in its essence. Yeah. And and I love the influence your mom had on you. And let me tell you something else. Uh, Without embarrassing you, I've been around you a lot of times, and you do that to other people. So it is a legacy that you've uh, created and continues to grow. So uh, we all benefit from it greatly. So thank you. Thanks, Scott. Very nice. Well, Doug, you had referred to your first job and and the experience of having two different leadership styles with Mike and Bob. And with all the roles that you've had within the organization and continue to hold uh, philanthropically, uh, I'd like to get your perspective on leadership and really just kind of pick your brain a little bit. What about leadership is, is most important to you? I mean, how would you describe your leadership style? Well, I'm too nice of a guy. That's that's my Achilles heel. And I guess if if, if I want to have a, a bad trademark, I don't mind having that one. It, you know, being tougher, making tough decisions on people was always something that uh, was the toughest thing for me because I, I love loyalty. I love people that are hard workers. But 
you can imagine with a company that's now 43 years old, we've had to make tough decisions on people. Leaders always have to because sometimes the, the world changes and some leaders aren't armed or experienced enough to deal with the new world like we have now. But I think what, what I and we tried to create at Chili's and Brinker was we tried to create a culture where we wouldn't have a situation where we had a Mike and Bob. We came up with some cultural beliefs. We came up with key results. We tried to make sure that people were aligned on language and on business. Uh, we got kind of nutty about words and how important words are because when you're 43 years old, when new people join the company, they tend to have their own acronyms and terms that describe things, and they're different than what, you know, every company kind of has its own vocabulary. Uh, you sat in rooms when there's a presenter and they start using acronyms, you're not sure what they're talking about. They, they just assume you know their acronyms. So we came up with words. The place where all of our corporate team members work is called the Restaurant Support Center. You don't call it anything else. The people that work for us are team members. You don't call them employees. They're team members. Uh, so we just came up with words that describe the people that come into our restaurants and buy our food are our guests. We made sure that everyone had a similar language because there were times in our company when just like Mike and Bob at Youngblood's Fried Chicken, someone might get transferred from one restaurant to another and the culture of the restaurant was more about the personality of the one leader than the culture of the company. So we went through this pretty uh, detailed time and process years ago and tried to come up with our passion and our cultural beliefs and our words and uh, using storytelling and focused feedback and uh, just all, all the sort of types of leadership and management styles and behaviors that we hope would create Mike and Bob acting the same instead of Mike and Bob acting totally different. <laughs> yeah. um, and again, with 125,000 team members, right. uh, and, and as Scott said, we had multiple brands. We also had challenges with the fact that each brand had its own unique personality out in the restaurant. It had its own uniform and menu and decor, yet we were trying to get people to have a Brinker team member culture. And so there was also a challenge with each brand wanting to have its own personality and culture, yet you had a parent company that also wanted to have something that was synonymous across the enterprise. So by trying to come up with those cultural guideposts, the beliefs, the passions, um, Hopefully, we did a pretty good job of, and, and I think that's the most important thing of leadership is that everyone has the same results. They're looking at the same beliefs. They're trying to behave and lead people using the same language and terminology. Well, I have to agree that that consistency uh, also trickles down into the customer experience. I know when I go into Maggiano's, I, I, I know exactly the service I'm going to get there. It's going to be great. Same with Chili's. And uh, it's, it's always the same, and it's been that way for years. So, well, it, well, well done. it starts with what the leadership leader creates, and if the leader creates this, uh, we call it the egg model, and the egg model, uh, I'm also on the board of Southwest Airlines, and they're one of those companies that believes that people always say, put the guests first. Southwest Airlines says, no, put, put their employees first. They call them employees. If I, treat, if I, as the leader, treat my employee great, they then will treat the guest great. And at Brinker, we have something called the egg model, and it's how the leader, again, treats the team member who then treats the guest. It passes on. Uh, people emulate the same behavior, and if, if leadership creates great service and hospitality, the guests should get that same experience. Well, let's play off of what you just shared with us, Doug. Uh, let me ask you about succession planning. Once you have identified these leadership qualities that you, you've just shared with us in someone that you're really excited about, how would you go about developing that particular person, male or female, and then grooming them for the next level of leadership within the company? 
Well, I think the functional part of leadership is the first thing. When I first became, I had been a field person at Chili's. I had been out in the field. When I became the chief operating officer at Brinker in 1998, I all of a sudden realized that there were all these people in apartments at the corporate headquarters that did all these things for me that I didn't know how to do. I realized I didn't know what investor relations did, and we were a public company. I didn't realize what the tax department did. I didn't realize what the treasury department did. I didn't realize how to do a real estate transaction or lease, yet I was the operator. I could run restaurants, but there were all these accountants and lawyers and marketing people. So I immediately went to each one of those departments and said, hey, can I spend a couple days with you? I'm the new COO, and I don't know what you do. So to answer your question, Scott, when someone we feel like has potential in the organization, whatever department or area they're in, we then put them on a path to start working in other departments so they understand the total business. Because even the restaurant business, as simple as it may seem, when you're a public company, it's complicated. There's a lot of things that you have to do, Sarbanes-Oxley laws, Dodd-Frank laws, you have a public board, you have Wall Street, a lot of parts of the business. we got to make sure they understand that first. Then obviously on the leadership style, uh, they get involved in teaching other leaders about the culture that we've tried to create here. So you're trying to, as I said with Norman Brink, you're trying to make sure that you're teaching them about business, but you're also trying to teach them about the people part of leadership. Uh, because it takes both. Jerks aren't allowed at Brinker International. If you're a jerk, go somewhere else. Uh, I've worked with a lot of smart people that couldn't, you know, motivate someone uh, to be successful. And uh, I've never met anyone that that encouraged me by, you know, raising their voice. So we do believe that civility and the way you treat people is important, but we also want to win and we have to have great results. So Norman Brinker used to be a tough guy that would sit down with you and give you constructive feedback, but I always knew when I walked away that he was trying to develop me. He had my best interest at heart, and I didn't want to let him down. Many times you leave a meeting with a supervisor who gave you feedback and you're angry at them. Norman had this way of creating a relationship where you knew he was trying to develop you and teach you. I think that's the most important thing about developing other leaders in the company. Definitely. And, and I want to piggyback a little bit about uh, what Scott was asking about, succession planning and transparency. Uh, they're just, uh, I4CP uh, shared a survey that was conducted by AMA Enterprises, and it reveals that just 11% of organizations characterize themselves as very transparent when it comes to their succession planning. And uh, the uh, senior VP uh, stated that uh, it could be, you know, the process seems mysterious, um, you know, sometimes political, it could be counterproductive, potentially even destructive without that transparency. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on transparency in, in general and when it comes to succession planning. Well, I think when it comes just to general leadership, Angel, and you're talking about being vulnerable, I think vulnerable leaders create trust when you can stand on stage and admit your weaknesses, admit mistakes you made, ask others to help you, as I did when I became COO, I admitted that I didn't know a lot and I wanted I wanted help and assistance. I think that kind of transparency and leadership is the ultimate in earning respect. But succession planning is tricky. It is very tricky. So I can tell you that uh, – and maybe let me even go down a couple notches. I won't talk about succession planning first. Let's talk about when someone – uh, informs their board or their leadership team they might be thinking about retiring. One of the challenges of that transparency is immediately the people on the other side of the table think, okay, well, this person's thinking about retiring. They probably uh, may be lame ducking. They may not have the same attitude about work. They start worrying that, okay, they're not going to be quite as motivated as they've been before. So you have to be careful. 
when you say political, I agree, but sometimes it's the perception people have if you say you're thinking about retiring. So when it comes to succession planning, the same thing. You're trying to create, you're trying to look for the top leaders in the company. I always am in favor of promoting from within if possible, particularly when the company's doing well. I think uh, you guys have probably seen a number of situations where if you bring in from someone from the outside, culturally, you may not know the type of leader you're really getting because you haven't had a chance to watch them in action for many, many years. But if you're too honest with too many people about succession planning, you also could completely demotivate a high-level executive who's doing a great job. So I think you have to be cautious and careful about who you share succession planning information with that it's not a demotivating factor to people besides two or three folks that have the most opportunities. I think don't assume that only a few people could be the successor. I'd say open up potential successor roles to as many leaders as you can, put them all in development paths, and then let their results partially tell the organization who are the best leaders. Because at the end of the day, the organization sees the people that have the best results, and that makes it a little bit easier for the, the leadership team to say, okay, here's the people with the best results. I'm not handpicking just my favorites. I'm giving everyone an opportunity to grow and learn and develop, but I'm also holding people accountable for who has the best results. Wow. Great advice, Doug. We are talking with Doug Brooks, the former CEO and chairman of Breaker International. We'll be back right after this. What are best practices? Are they what set you apart from your competition? Or are they simply what most companies do to stay in the race? At the Institute for Corporate Productivity, or I4CP, we focus on next practices. And that focus is what today's high-performance organizations rely on to lead the way. Next practices are tactics and strategies that our research has discovered have a great impact on market performance, but that few companies are using. They are what will define market leadership in the years ahead. I4CP helps you see around the curve so your company can adapt and take advantage of emerging trends in the ever-evolving world of human capital. We want you to lead the way. So join our team, I4CP, Institute for Corporate Productivity leading the way and now back to scott murray and angel carlton and leading the way powered by the institute for corporate productivity welcome back as we continue our conversation with doug brooks former ceo chairman of brinker international scott murray and angel carlton on leading the way here on the first sunday of the month of june where has the year gone it's unbelievable but we're delighted to uh, to share with you all the incredible information that doug has shared with us today and we're not done yet, so hold on. How about this? Read your views on diversity and inclusion, and they're quite refreshing. Thank you very much, Doug. You said, and I quote, I believe it is crucial to sustain a strong diversity and inclusion program as it is not only impacts the way we attract, retain, and develop our team members, but it ensures value is added to the company and to our shareholders. So tell us a little more about uh, your thoughts on that and the DNI program. Well, you know, the restaurant industry, as you might imagine, is an incredibly diverse workforce. Uh, you have folks from all races, creeds, colors, backgrounds, countries that work in restaurants. It's a great first job. Many times people that come to our country, they're looking for work, and the restaurant industry is a great place. So uh, there's no way, a, uh, you know, any company should not have the members of its workforce look like the customers and certainly the leadership. 
One thing I'm very proud of at Chili's right now, Kelly Valade, our president of Chili's, is a female. First female that's ever been the president of that brand. And um, I recently joined the University of Houston Board of Regents. And University of Houston is the second most diverse college in the United States. And our chancellor and president is an Indian woman named Renu Couture. So I think diversity can certainly be background. It also can be geographical. Mm -hmm. I think I think whether it's a boardroom, whether it's a leadership team, whether it's a restaurant, the more diverse your workforce and team is, uh, the more the better ch opportunity you have of understanding your team members, your guests, their needs, and perspectives. And perspectives and respect are so important in business. Totally mm -hmm. agree. Totally yeah. agree. That's where innovation comes into play. Well, that's great. And speak of, speaking of innovation, with uh, so many industries changing, as you alluded to earlier, Doug, as a result of the, the rapidly evolving high-tech world, how, how is technology impacting the restaurant industry today? Well, in, in all sorts of ways. Luckily, people still eat, and you can't download food. Uh, <laughs> right. you, you have to purchase it. But the problem is, I, and I call I call the holiday season of 2016 was when the Amazon factor hit. So November and December of 2016, that was the first big time where consumers shopped with their fingers instead of their cars. And so, by the way, if you've looked at most suburban retail centers, there's this symbiotic relationship between restaurants and retail. Retailers are there, restaurants are out in front of them, and when people would shop, they would eat. So if all of a sudden they're not shopping, guess what? Restaurant sales went down. So in 2017, you saw retailers declare bankruptcy. You saw CEOs lose jobs. Most recently, Toys R Us. Uh, so anybody that has lots of bricks and mortar, and by the way, I think Scott said we have 1,686 bricks and mortar buildings. We've had to evolve and create online, better ordering, better purchasing, better apps, omni-channel strategies. Uh, you know, Maggiano's has a huge part of their business now that is catering and to-go. Uh, you can sit in front of almost any office building in North Texas at lunchtime and watch the stream of cars come up to that building. It could be Jimmy John's, then it's Subway, then it's Corner Bakery, then it's Chili's. People are sitting in buildings and wanting food delivered to them. So uh, Amazon has created this, this new mindset where consumers want food brought to them. And when Uber Eats in Dallas a few years ago started charging their customers $5 to bring a McDonald's order to their house, $5. So if you ordered a, a breakfast sandwich that cost 3 bucks, you paid more for the delivery. And millennials love it. They don't see that as an issue. They want people to convenience. So technology is at the center of all of those strategies. And uh, it is funny talking about millennials. If you looked at the marketing departments and the technology departments at Brinker today versus five years ago, the average age is about 15, 20 years younger. Mm -hmm. All these young, smart millennials are they're digital officers. They're, they're, they're driving all the strategies of how to reach the guest, and most are through better omni-channel strategies and technology. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, gosh, you talk about technology. What are some of the trends uh, for the next generation in customers are you seeing? I mean, can you share what the customer experience looks like today and where you see it going? Well, uh, 20 or so years ago, Angel, fast casual became the the dining of venue. So Chili's, Maggiano's, that's casual dining. You sit down and a server waits on you. Well, when when uh, Chipotle and Panera and Corner Bakery started, it, it was sort of the modern-day cafeteria for us baby boomers. You went down the line, you paid, you sat down, you didn't have to tip. So you could eat in 20 or 30 minutes, or casual dining might take 45 minutes to an hour. So it's all about time. 
So I think the experience, whether you're in casual dining or in fast casual or even, even fast food, uh, it's trying to make sure the guests can get their food quickly and pay. Uh, Chili's has these Ziosk iPads and all their all their tables, so you can pay yourself. You can get in and out faster. Everybody's that's why delivery is so important. People don't have time to go out, so if they do go out, you better make sure to maximize their time. Make ordering easy. Make it faster. Make them able to come and go, or they're going to go somewhere else. Yep, absolutely. World. It really is moving too quickly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, before we let you go, Doug, we've got to talk about the philanthropic side of not only Brinker, but of, uh, of Doug Brooks. Uh, the passion that you both have, have uh, continued to, it's, it's an incredible legacy. It really is, and extremely inspiring to, to everybody that is, uh, is around you people. We had Rick Shadiak on our show a couple of weeks ago, the, the man that calls us the shots at ALSAC and uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and, and there, as we have said many times before, Touching the touching the lives of sick kids all across the the whole the globe, and uh, it, it's 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 a uh, well. The first time I went there, I said this is a Disney World for sick kids. It really is above and beyond. You a few years back created the Chili's Care Center, fifty million dollars, and that sits as uh, proudly as can be at St. Jude in in Memphis. Tell us how that all came about, and just uh, why you continue to do what you do. And you tell me you've got something else along that that same line now uh, that's brand new. What is it? Well, well, Scott, I got involved back in 1998. Joe Hager, who was a board member at Brinker and really a close friend of St. Jude founder Danny Thomas, Joe asked me if I wanted to serve on the professional advisory board, which was then run by Dick Shadiak, Rick's father. So I didn't even know what St. Jude Hospital was. I went up there, fell in love with it, as you said, and, and got involved personally. Well, then the Chili's brand had always done things in the community, but we tested something in the Tennessee market where we actually asked our guests in National Cancer Month for a month to come in and color crayons on a piece of paper and give us a dollar, just a dollar. And we posted their pictures on the wall, and it was called the Color of Pepper uh, Childhood Cancer. And uh, anyway, that turned into, as you said, a $50 million commitment to St. Jude, which most of that money was raised by guests or team members. One day a month, we give all of our profits to St. Jude. But the other days of the month, it's guests coming in, falling in love with the idea and wanting to help. So we ended up raising the $50 million in eight years. They built the Chili's Care Center, which is a 300,000-square-foot incredible building on the St. Jude campus. But our team members love St. Jude. If I was to tell anyone at Chili's we no longer were going to raise money for St. Jude, they'd quit. So currently we have now committed an, an additional $30 million, and we're supporting this. There's a school on campus where all the kids that are there being treated for cancer get tutored by teachers in the Memphis area. This is now the Chili St. Jude School. And between the original 50 and this 30 and some money in between, when that 30 is raised, oh, in about four more years, we'll have contributed somewhere north of $90 million to St. Jude Children's Hospital, just from guests and team members at Chili's giving a dollar. Uh, and that dollar, when you have a million customers a day, can add up to, well, $90 million. That's innovation. That's really creative. Isn't that something? I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, that's, that's the guy we're talking to, and that's the company that he's worked for for 40 years. That's how they think. I mean, Norman was uh, involved in, uh, in helping to create the, uh, the Komen Fund, the, uh, you know, the, uh, for breast cancer and what have I mean, I mean, he, the, these people just care about others. It's, it's yes, amazing what you, what you have done. And the legacy that, that you talk about your, your mentor, Norman Brinker, and what you've done to continue that legacy in your own right is above and beyond, Doug. So, uh, so thanks. for. I tell you, 
when I first saw it was in the late 90s, and of course you talk about Hager, that's uh, Joe Hager from the Hager Slacks Company. If people yeah. are saying, I wonder if that's the, the pant guy. Well, it is the pant guy. And, and I mean, that's you people all come together. You've got, uh, you know, an opportunity to spend your money in a lot of ways, but you've decided to, to help others. And these kids that have, have cancer, I mean, they're so resilient. You look at them and boy, I mean, it's a life lesson just to walk into that place and see how they respond to all that they have to endure every single day. And you think to yourself, I've got problems. Don't even think about it. It really is. Well, thanks. There's nothing. It's pretty easy to get people aligned behind supporting St. Jude. There's a few words you never want to have a parent have to be told, and that is your child has cancer. And as Danny Thomas said, they shouldn't die in the dawn of their lives. So uh, it's a. it's a labor of love to raise money to help uh, Rick Shadiak and, and take care of the kids at St. Jude Hospital. Well, you're right alongside him, Doug. I can't thank you enough. Any any closing thoughts uh, that you'd like to share with us? Angel, any uh, final thought that you'd like to, to share with Doug? Well, I just want to say thank you for being here and sharing a lot of your uh, wisdom and insights. You had some really great uh, stuff to share and, uh, you know, exactly what Scott was saying and how much we appreciate all the giving back that you do as a result. Well, thanks. Eat at Chili's, eat at Maggiano's. We're, we're, we're yeah. I wondered when that plug was going to come in there. Come on. They have a new burger called the Boss Burger at Chili's. you got to try it, Scott. See if you can eat the whole thing. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a deal. I'll take right. you up on it. Well, I tell you what, Doug Brooks, uh, you're a good man and a great friend. And uh, thanks for all you do, not only at, at uh, you know the corporate world, but thanks for all you continue to do philanthropically. He's the former CEO and chairman of Brinker International. And uh, you need a good burger? Check out Chili's. Maggiano, <laughs> they deliver. Hey, folks, it doesn't get much better than that. Thank you, Doug. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Angel. Thank you. Doug Brooks, former CEO, chairman of Brinker International, making a difference in the lives of a lot of folks out there. So thank you much, Doug. We're going to be back with a little insight segment. Yes, we are. Stay tuned. All right. The good folks from I4CP coming back with some thoughts on all that we've shared with you today. Don't go away. Leading the way. It's about influential leaders and the business practices leading companies use to impact market performance. That's what the Institute for Corporate Productivity, or I4CP, does on a daily basis. We work with leading companies, from Amazon to Boeing, and REI to 3M, to not only discover the best people practices of high-performance organizations, but the next practices, those that will define market leadership in the years ahead. Senior HR, learning, talent, and diversity executives from many of the most respected companies in the world rely on I4CP to ensure that their efforts will make the greatest impact on the business. After all, it's difficult to stay ahead by only looking behind. I4CP's focus on next practices is what today's top companies rely on to lead the way. I4CP, Institute for Corporate Productivity, leading the way every single day welcome back to leading the way here are your hosts scott murray and angel carlton 447 on your sunday afternoon great to have you along sunny on the outside and here on the inside we uh, continue on hello there i'm scott murray and i'm angel carlton and And you know what your microphone is not on my friend is it on is it on is it on it's on it's now. On. How about that? <laughs> Through the magic. <laughs> the little button that says on, the probably bu- a good idea. It works real well. Thank you very much. Good hey, night, everybody. Thanks for coming this, by. What can I say? Well, I tell this- you what, we know what we thought about uh, the good man, Doug Brooks, longtime friend. So obviously, you know what I thought of this guy. I've known him forever. But let's find out what uh, Kevin Oaks has to say. The CEO, yet another CEO from I4CP. What'd you think, my friend? Oh, I thought Doug was uh, fantastic. He, um, 
know, clearly it's, it's easy to see that he's a great leader and has been a great leader. I love some of his comments around uh, just making people feel special and, and treating employees with respect and, and having, uh, you know, the customer service really emanate from how you treat your employees you know, just all great tenants of great companies. And so it's easy to see why people think Doug is such a great leader. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll blow a little smoke your way, Kevin, because you would really like Doug. Yeah, the two of you in a lot of ways are very, very similar. And I just, uh, I think the world of, uh, of Doug have known him for years and have come to know you just as well. And I'll tell you what, uh, you're very, very similar. So all the nice things you just said about, uh, about him, Go look in the mirror. <laughs> I tell you what, really, it's very similar to watch it away from the radio and what have you. You're both very, very similar. So that's that's a good thing. Would you not agree, uh, Angel? Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, well, I know I know Kevin pretty well, right. but uh, just, well, you got you got know. you know you got a chance to meet. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just a good person. Yes, you, know? you can yeah. tell. Yep. You can tell. Well, so, I'm glad I'm glad this is radio and not TV, so you can't see me blush. Uh-oh. But thank you very much. <laughs> you probably have your radio clothes on anyway, right? That's right, I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's kick off the insight segment here uh, with the first question, and and that is, what what are the elements necessary for ensuring su- success with executive succession planning, or practices that companies should consider if they want to improve? the development of succession candidates. We talked a little bit about that with Doug. What are your thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, I like that part of the uh, interview. And, you know, it's interesting um, that a lot of companies are not very good at this. Uh, they don't do a great job at executive succession planning. We did. We actually did some research on that a little while ago and found that uh, only 19% of companies said that they are effective at identifying and preparing uh, successors to fill executive level roles. And then when you go a step down, uh, even fewer, 15% indicated that they're uh, able to do the same for, you know, roles below the C-suite. Uh, so that means, you know, you've got the majority of organizations out there that really do need a lot of help in this area. And the ones that do it well, Angel, they, uh, they start by doing what we call a talent map inside their organization. They, um, they do a good job of really identifying what are some of the critical positions uh, in the company, critical roles and pivotal roles in the company. Um, and so I'm speaking more broadly than just the CEO, of course. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, they create in this talent map sort of a two-by-two, two, where on one axis they have what is really core to our business, what roles are. And then the other axis, they look at difficulty of acquiring those skills in the marketplace. And then just start listing roles in each one of those areas. And then once they've done that, they then determine what skills those positions need. And I think that's a big part of it when you're thinking about CEOs as well. Uh, Before you start thinking about the person, start thinking about the skills and the capabilities that you want in that person, in that role. Because that will inevitably um, start to change the, the actual people that you're thinking about. Uh, and then from there, you know, go out and find and assess potential successors. Uh, we find that top companies do a good job at preparing for this. They they know where successors might be, both internally uh, and externally. Uh, so it's important to you know have a you know a list or a talent pool of potential successors um, to uh, to critical roles. Uh, you know, part of that could be. 
uh, enlisting the help of others inside the organization for that. Sometimes they know where the hidden talent is rather than the obvious talent. Uh, so I think that's a good uh, aspect that a lot of companies are doing. And then also, you know, commit to developing your internal talent. The best successors really do come uh, from inside the organization, but you're going to lose your good people along the way unless you are developing them, grooming them, uh, even talking to them about uh, their ability to be a potential successor long term. You want to make sure you're keeping that high potential talent inside the organization so when the day does come, when somebody's retiring or for whatever reason, you know, exits the position, uh, you've got that, that great pool of talent inside the organization. Boy, you, that was great stuff uh, that you just shared with us, Kevin. So, But let me kind of play off what you just shared with us and go even further because Doug said at one point in the program that transparency and succession planning can be tricky. I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about that. But what do you think? Are there a couple things that companies really, really struggle with the most when it comes to that succession planning, anything come to mind? Yeah, he was right. It is tricky. Um, I'm always a big proponent of transparency. Um, in certain situations, transparency uh, has to be managed fairly carefully um, because you don't want to disincent certain, you know, great performers or, you know, create political issues. I think Angel, you even brought that up inside inside the organization. But I think what what companies struggle with the most, Scott, is uh, is really just planning to begin with. Um, we, um, uh, in, in research that we've done and research that others have done, when you look at the su- success and failures of CEO succession, you're twice as likely to fail if that CEO that was put in place was unplanned uh, and you know, twice as likely to succeed if it was planned to start with. And a lot of companies just aren't planning, as I said before, and that really starts with the board of directors. And I think what's happening and this has happened over the last several years is the boards are spending a lot of time on strategy. We've talked about disruption on this on this show and organizational agility. Um, they're not spending as much time as they used to on things like CEO succession. In fact, a, a study KPMG did a little while ago uh, showed that only 14% of directors had a detailed board succession plan. Uh, and so I think that's a, you know, a big part of the issue is uh, having that board uh, really you know, think through this, have a plan in place uh, long term. Many of them just do not. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Wow, love, the, love those statistics too. Well, because this is a topic that we haven't really talked much on on our show, let me ask you one more question as it relates to succession planning. Where do you see succession planning heading in the next 10 years for executives? I'm certain technology is going to play a bigger and bigger role here. Um, We're seeing that with assessments today. Uh, More and more organizations are developing very, very sophisticated assessments uh, especially at senior levels, um, to, uh, to put successors in. Now, that's not necessarily new. We've been doing assessments of one you know, form or another for, for many, many years. A company I used to be on the board of, DDI, which is in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, has done this for decades, where they, they'd uh, have a, a simulated office environment and put executives in that office environment, uh, throw all kinds of you know, challenges at them throughout the day, and secretly watch, you know, through video cameras how they handled it. And the I.O. psychologists in the back rooms, you know, would be taking notes. 
those kind of assessments have been around quite a long time. What I'm talking about are more computer-based assessments, um, simulations, et cetera, through the computer that uh, has a pretty sophisticated um, engine underneath, you know, in, in some cases an AI engine that's helping to assess, you know, is that candidate really uh, the right fit for your organization? Is this somebody that's going to be uh, around for the long haul? And so I'm certain that that's what's going to you know, take place over the next 10 years. We'll see more and more of that, Angel, in this field of uh, executive succession planning for sure. Very interesting. Let me ask you, we've got time for maybe one more question, just a minute or two here, uh, Kevin. We, we spoke about technology and how it's impacted the, the rest and restaurant industry, certainly something that we're all involved with in, in some way, shape, or form, just as customers through the years. And yet I just wondered, as this technology curve continues to be front and centered for all of us, what advice do you have for companies to stay ahead of that technology, that technology curve, despite what industry it might be? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's a lot to be said for environmental scanning here, and more and more organizations need to put efforts into that. And that's looking out at uh, your current industry, so in this case the restaurant industry, and you know what advancements are being made, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. I'm still amazed that, you know, when I go to Europe, they uh, they bring the uh, credit card machine to your table and you handle the transaction right <laughs> there. Um, I rarely see that in the U.S. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, you know, I think there are some, you know, just innovations that can happen from witnessing what's happening around the world. Um, but I think for larger organizations, what we're also seeing them do is proactively reach out to startup organizations uh, just to try to get inspiration and ideas, you know, from those startups. Uh, sometimes that can even happen across industry, and I often encourage organizations, don't just limit yourself to what's happening within your own industry. Look at other industries, look at other companies, uh, because often that will spark some ideas uh, for your industry. Mm-hmm. The beauty of I4CP right there. That's what we do. That's right. And <laughs> we're talking to Kevin Oakes, the CEO of the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Kevin you're awesome, as usual. Thank you so much. Yeah, he's ever get tired of us saying how awesome he is. I just wondered. Or not just us. I think everybody <laughs> says that about him. So it, it never gets old. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Boy, do I hear you. Presenting partner I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Look it up on the uh, on the web, folks. They're incredible in all that they continue to do every single day, and we're proud to be a part with uh, their team. So uh, thank you much, and we'll see you down the road again, Kevin. Thanks much. Okay, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Angel. (laughs) All right, thank you much. Well, that'll do it for uh, this edition of Leading the Way. Until next week, I'm Scott Murray. And I'm Angel Carlton. And as we always remind you, live your legacy by leading the way. Till next week, so long, everybody. Good night.